don't know if you remember early in COVID, but uh, when things first hit, all of us had the thought that, wow, this is an opportunity. Now that we're quarantining, now that we're slowing down, gives all of us the opportunity for us to maybe get healthy or, or become fit or refocus or become more productive as people. You might remember that phase of time, that line of thinking, it came right before when all of us shifted gears to just binge watching Netflix series and different streaming platforms uh, where it seemed like we pivoted rather quickly, at least in our home. Uh, one of the shows that Lindsay and I started watching was a show called Alone. And I don't know if you've ever seen the show. Um, I don't quite know even why we are into it because it's so, maybe it's because it's so far removed from who we are as people, but it's a survival show where contestants are dropped off in super remote locations where they have to then live and last the longest out of all of the other contestants who are also dropped off in remote locations. All the while, they fend off wild animals, they have to deal with harsh weather conditions, and at the same time, they're filming themselves because they really are absolutely alone and isolated. And before their journey actually begins, before they even film the first episode, there's a really interesting point of decision for them where they have to sit in a valley of decision and think through. They get 10 items of their choice to take with them on their journey. And their goal is at times, depending on the season, and we have watched a few because COVID lasted a while, uh, their, their goal is to last 100 days out uh, with absolutely nothing other than the clothes on their backs and 10 items that they would bring in their packing list. I mean, you, you just pause for a moment to imagine, what would it be like to know I'm gonna spend 100 days in the Arctic with nothing more than the clothes on my back and then 10 items that I choose, and I'm doing it for a shot at a half million dollars, which is so funny because when we watch it, that is a lot of money, I realize, but when we watch it and people from different parts of the country are competing, they start talking about, oh my goodness, this would be life-changing, this is, I'll never work again, we'll pay off our house and everything else and we'll live off this, and, I don't know where these people live, but we'd need five times that in order to feel that way. But for, for that, or for you, if you were in their spot, I mean, what would make your list of 10 items if you know you were going out on a journey where you really don't know what to expect? You just know you're going to be isolated. You know it's going to be rough. You know that you'll be on your own. I mean, would you add to your list an ax so that you could chop up firewood because you're going to need to stay warm and build a shelter even? Or would you bring something that would help you start a fire? Because some people would rely on their own ability just to rub sticks together, but then they'd end up in a rainforest, and then they were in big trouble, unable to start a fire. Well, what about a pot? Because you need to boil the water over the fire so that you don't get sick and you can last that longer. Or you still haven't caught any food, so do you bring fishing line, hoping that you're near a body of water? Or do you bring a bow and arrow, hoping that you can hunt big game, or maybe just to protect yourself from grizzly bears, because some of the seasons involve those? Now, for me... I don't assume that anyone in the world likes packing. But we do know that for some situations in life that your packing list is more important than others. Lindsay and I, this last week, we took our family for part of the week to Mammoth. And before we departed, we made the decision, a calculated decision, not to stress ourselves out with trying to bring all the food that we needed for the week. Instead, we decided, let's change it up. And on this trip, let's just go light with just the clothes that we need. And let's just shop when we get there because there's a grocery store and there's a credit card in our pocket and let's just save ourselves the stress and the hassle of being worried about getting everything and packing the car floor to ceiling. We don't always have that luxury though, depending on where you're going and traveling or, or what era even in history you were in. You can find yourself in a really difficult or maybe even a very dangerous predicament if you fail to pack the proper items, if you fail to go out 
absolutely prepared. The reason I'm reminding you of all of this is because Jesus is going to do something really unique here in our story today. Something new is going to take place where he's going to send his 12 disciples out in pairs, two by two. And when he sends them out, he's going to give them something very specific and very powerful, something incredibly significant that will be a part of their packing list. But then he's going to limit the remainder of their list to just a few simple items. He's not going to allow them to travel with an awful lot because he seems determined that he wants to teach them that they can trust in him. And if you read with me in Mark's gospel, chapter 6, in fact, look where we left off in verse 6, where it tells you as Jesus is departing from Nazareth that he marveled because of their unbelief. Then Jesus went about the villages in a circuit teaching. And as Jesus travels from place to place, he's seen, Matthew's gospel tells us, all of these people that he's viewing as sheep without a shepherd, that he's seen that they're lost and in need. And it says that he's moved with compassion in Matthew's gospel. And then it says, verse 7, and he called the 12 to himself and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them power over unclean spirits. This is what he gave them that was so significant. He gave them authority over these unclean spirits. He commanded them to take nothing, though, for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. Also, he said to them, in whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you, when you depart from there, shake off the dust under or from under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city, that city that rejects you, that won't hear you. Verse 12, so they went out and preached that the people should repent and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and they healed them. If you skip ahead all the way to verse 30, this is where they return. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to stop and to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. If someone were to ask you, what does God want from me? What's God's expectation of me? How would you answer him? Like if someone really asked you that question, what would come to mind? How would you respond? What does God want from me? Or maybe take a step back a bit. What do we think that God wants from us personally? Like if we, if we answer the question ourselves, what, what, what does God want from me? How, how would we respond to that? How would people outside of the church how would our world respond to that? What does God want from you? What do you think? What impression have you been left with? I think the world outside the church would answer and say, well, he wants my adherence to all of his expectations, to his rules. Some might say he wants my money. Others would say he's just looking for my time or he's after free labor. If you ask Professor Google this very question, if you put in quotations, what does God want? You actually get 1.2 million responses that Google gives you as an option because of how many people are taking to the internet to ask and answer that very question, what does God want? Take away the quotations around it and you jump all the way up to 9.2 billion options for you to spend your afternoon looking through because people are asking this question of what does God want? 
If you ask people inside of the church, you as a person who, who maybe chooses to follow Jesus, how would we answer that question? Remember, later in Mark's gospel, Jesus will answer a guy who comes and says, what's the greatest commandment? Sum up the whole thing. What's the whole expectation of God? And Jesus will tell them that you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that you love your neighbor as yourself. And in Matthew's gospel, he adds that note where he says, and on these hang all of the law and the prophets, that you would fulfill every expectation that God has if you'd simply choose to love him and love other people and treat them as you would want to be treated. But what Jesus will do in our story here is he's going to communicate things that he really does want from us. Yes, ultimately what he wants is for us to love him and to love others. But I think he describes in a sense, gives us a picture here of what it would look like to love him and to love others. And so that's what we'll discuss this morning. Because remember, Mark's gospel thus far, his biography of the life of Jesus, has made it clear that Jesus is out doing this new thing. And everywhere that Jesus has gone, he seems to be applauded. Every place he shows up to talk about his kingdom that he's establishing, he seems to be welcomed until last week. We landed on a story where Jesus goes home. And it's the first time that that the people completely reject him, where they turn on him. But now you find Jesus moving forward in his mission, his rejection, his feeling of deep hurt, him saying, remember, with emotion in his tone that a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and amongst his own family. The emotion, the hurt that was present did not stop him. It couldn't stop him. And on the heels of those in Nazareth failing to see that Jesus was wonderful and worthy, you're then introduced to a story of the people who truly knew Jesus, his followers, his disciples, who are seen willing to give everything up for him because they see him as wonderful and worthy. Now, we know this about Jesus. He's what's called a peripatetic teacher. He would walk and teach, not just walking from village to village to teach a new audience. No, but as he walked from village to village, he was teaching and training his disciples constantly. Remember, the goal of these disciples was not just that they would know intellectually what their rabbi, Jesus, would know, but that they would become like their rabbi. That was their goal, to embody him, to to live out the mission and message of the one that they followed. And in this story, those disciples also now become known as apostles. Remember, a disciple is a learner, a student, a pupil, an apprentice, but an apostle is something more and different from that. In fact, in verse 7, you're introduced to this word in Greek where it says that he sent them out. It's a new title he gives them, that they are apostles, sent ones, unique title, a unique title that these men and a few others in the book of Acts will be given that Jesus sends them out with authority. Commentators and linguists, they tell us that that this idea of an apostle, that it means to send someone with special commission to represent another and accomplish his work. Or another scholar, he says it this way, an apostle is one who is commissioned by his master with the master's own authority and sent out in the master's name. There are really three different groups of people who follow Jesus in the gospels. The first is just that there's crowds of people, that every time he shows up in a new village or in a new place, that there's a crowd of people who either came to be healed, to see a healing, or to hear a teaching, or maybe to get a free meal, because Jesus gets in a rhythm seemingly of doing that. 
So there's a crowd, that's one category of people who are around Jesus, but then there are disciples, and there are more than just 12 of them. In fact, in Luke's gospel, he references that there were as many as 70 of them, 70 people who followed Jesus from place to place, hearing all that he taught, seeing all that he did, not just the crowds that would gather when he'd arrive, they went with him from place to place. But now there's this third grouping, this group of 12, the 12 that we know of as the disciples shift gears here, and now they become known not just as the people who follow Jesus, but as the apostles, the ones who are commissioned by Jesus. This sets them apart as a unique group. Now remember for a moment, though, this unique group, who they really were. These weren't people that Jesus took from the rabbinic schools of the day, basically the universities. Remember, later in Acts chapter 4, they, they will be referenced by people who listen to them saying, how are you, these untrained, uneducated, unlearned men, able to speak with such authority? They were clearly not people who were trained with a lifetime of preparation leading up to this moment. These were fishermen and tax collectors. These were zealots. They're Jewish insurrectionists. This is a hodgepodge group of mostly young people. Remember, probably a bunch of teenagers with the exception of maybe Peter and maybe Levi. The rest seem to be just in their teen years. And Jesus calls them to follow him. And the fact that he calls them from the workforce tells you that they were already passed over and said, you don't make the cut, so go learn the family trade because you're not going to make the cut to continue your schooling, to become a, a, a pupil or a disciple or a rabbi in the end. And yet Jesus chose those kinds of people who had already been passed over. So these were not these, well, clearly he chose these people as the apostles. It's a bunch of teenagers with issues who, who emotionally sometimes get a little too charged up saying like, hey, they rejected us. Can you burn them all? And we watch. Like there are moments like that where you're like, I don't understand how a grown person thinks that way. But when you're like, well, they're probably 14 or 15. You're like, I totally understand. I can see how this would happen. Listen, Jesus' goal with those guys, though, is he pulled them aside to teach and train these young men so that they could both assist him and eventually take his place in spreading his message once he would return to heaven. And that's what he's prepping them for here in this moment. This is their trial run, in a sense. Listen, we spent a whole Sunday talking, though, about the title, the concept, and the culture of a disciple. And I'd love to revisit those things, but we don't have time. And so I just point you back to an archive and just say, go back and look at it. Uh, I think we entitled it Follow With Me. And we talked about the cultural idea, the concept of being a follower of Jesus in the first century, of being a disciple. But for our story here, the story of the sending out of the 12, it's very, very specific. And I want you to know, I don't think Jesus... Packing list is a magic formula like, hey, don't take a bag. Uh, you're allowed a staff. No rod, Matthew's gospel says. Like, that's a club to defend yourself. A shepherd's staff is fine. No bag, no bread, no copper. You can't carry any money. You can wear a pair of sandals. Matthew makes it clear that it's not a pair of thick hiking shoes, but just simple sandals. This is not some magic formula like, hey, if you do it this way, then you're going to have great results. So we, we aren't to view it that way. But there are some things from this that I think that we can glean and, and observe about what God really wants from us. So I want you to consider this with me. The first thing is this. The story shows me that what God wants from me is that Jesus wants me to know him. And, and maybe you're here just observing and you don't even know what you think about the idea of Christianity or following Jesus. Can I just tell you what he actually wants from you first and foremost is he wants you to know him. I think there are a few things that, that really do rub people the wrong way when it comes to the church or, or Christianity in general, as much as feeling like the church either just wants their money 
or that, that Christians are just a bunch of hypocrites and, and they're harsh and judgmental. And, and that might be your perception. And may I tell you that Jesus was not that way and that you ought to follow him. Other people would say, it's just that I think God wants something from me. He just wants to use me. But may I tell you that, that what Jesus wants most of all from you is, is for you to know him. Listen, it's true that he does want something from you, but first and foremost, what he wants from you is you. Sometimes I think we're resistant, even those of us who have followed Jesus for a long time, I think we're resistant and cautious with him because we think he's going to want to make me do something that I don't really want to do. But long before he wants me to do anything, what he actually wants is just me, to, to, to love me, to, to know me, to be known by me. Remember, God didn't leave heaven to build some army. He left heaven to start a family, to adopt you as a son or a daughter. Remember, scripture says, behold, what manner of love the father has given unto us that we would be called his sons and daughters. Before he'd ask anything of anyone, what does he say here? Mark chapter six, verse seven. And he called the 12 to himself. That's the first thing he did. He wants to know you. That's what God wants from you. He didn't call them to a task, nor did he call them for some job. He called them first and foremost to himself to be with him. And in fact, in Mark chapter 2, verse 14, if you look back to your left, Jesus invites Levi, the tax collector, to follow him. And Greek linguist Dr. Weiss points out that Jesus' simple words, follow me, are probably better translated to say, follow with me, because his invitation to Levi was not just an invitation to, to follow behind me, but to walk closely beside me. The invitation was not just about servitude. The invitation that we answer from heaven is about sonship. It's about belonging in a home, being a part of a family again. In fact, God's great goal for you is not just to be a disciple or to be sent out and commissioned. His great goal for you is for you to be adopted. He purchased you with the precious blood of his son so that he could adopt you as his own child. It's Mark chapter 3, verse 14, where it says, Then he appointed the twelve that they might be with him and that they might go and preach. His first priority was that he grabbed those 12 guys, these 12 guys, so that he could pull them aside to be with him. He invited them first to know him long before he asked them to do anything for him or to go anywhere and talk about him. Why? Why is that true? Why is that the rhythm that we see in the life of Jesus? Because he loves you. It's that simple. Because he made you in his image and you have intrinsic value to him. In Ephesians 2, it says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any of us should boast. Well, why? Well, not because I've done anything. It's not because of anything that I will do or can do. It's simply because of his grace, his unmerited favor that he freely and inexplicably gives to me that he says, I just want to know you. Listen, my friends, pop... Contrary to popular demand, or, or popular opinion even, we are not all God's children. We're all God's creation, made in his image, and because of that, having incredible intrinsic value to him, not needing to earn or have that value assigned to us, we have that intrinsic value to him, and so valuable were we to him that he bled and died for us to invite us to be a part of his family once again, where we can be adopted as sons and daughters of God, but the choice is ours. 
It's not just that all of us are God's children. It's that he loved us enough to bring us back into his home and all of us can be his children at great cost and expense to himself. Listen, I want you to know, but more than I want you to know, I want you to believe that what Jesus wants from you first and foremost is just to know him because he called them apart to himself, it says here. But the second thing I just point out to you, and it's very simple, is it's not just that he wants you to know him, he wants you ultimately to trust him. That's the second thing. He wants you to trust them. And it's one of the clearest things that this text teaches us is that Jesus wanted his disciples to trust him. In fact, he puts them in a position where they're going to have to trust him. Listen, in the ancient world, you'd send a representative out to speak on your half because there is no technology that you could float your message out on the airwaves or out via the cloud or out on some social networking platform. You couldn't just take to Facebook to share your ideology or political opinions. You couldn't do those things. There was no printing press so that you could mass distribute your take on culture or on how you see the world. No, instead you'd send out representatives. You'd train them so that they knew the way that you think, so that they could reflect your character, that they would carry with them your message and you'd send them out in your name, in your place, because that was the way that you could get your message into the world. And that's what Jesus is doing here. In fact, there's these scattered reports from the first century that historians tell us about a bunch of wandering philosophers, where they would travel around the ancient world from place to place, from city to city, sharing their ideology. And when they come to a new place, Historians tell us that they would beg for money because they didn't have anything with them, and then they would teach the people. But what they were known to teach was that the present world system, with its hierarchy and prestige, that it was all an empty sham, that it was a wasted pursuit, and their push on people was reject the world system because it's deeply broken. Now, in history, these sort of traveling philosophers who do this, they were called cynics, which is from the Greek word scion, which means dog. Now, don't picture a lap dog or the lady who pushes her dog in a stroller on PCH or carries her dog in the mall. Don't picture that dog in that culture was not about a uh, you know, family pet or something uh, that was loved and nurtured and cared for and valued. No, dogs were pets that were often unwanted. They were stray dogs on the, on the streets. The idea here of them calling them the dogs, these philosophers, was that they had the reputation of showing up and barking at those who were rich and prominent, telling them that it's all a lie and a sham that you're believing in, that none of this really matters what you're chasing after. And so they referred to them as the dogs. And, and there's a part of this story here that seems to, it almost appears like Jesus sends out his guys like those in the culture were sending out, the philosophers of the day were sending out their followers but there was, a, there was a difference here in at least three different ways. And one of them was that Jesus told his guys, you're not allowed to beg. You can't go there and tell them, hey, it's all a sham, but I need your money. The other thing is that Jesus had sent them with some actual authority. That they weren't just going out to throw stones at other people. That they went out to bring healing where there was brokenness. Where they went out to bring life where there was death. Where they went out to bring hope where there was hopelessness. They weren't just there sitting saying there's death and hopelessness and a lack of peace everywhere. And then walking away from the situation, they were saying, look at the brokenness in the world and look what Jesus can do to make it right again. You see, Jesus, the other way that his guys were different is that Jesus' disciples believed that change was and is possible. Whereas the cynics thought that the world was an incurable mess. But the message of Jesus was so very different. It was quite the opposite. And did you notice when Jesus sent the guys out, he'd send them out in pairs. He sent them together. 
He sent them out two by two. And a part of this, I'm sure, is that this would be a quicker and safer journey if they didn't go alone, if they could work together. In the Old Testament, there's an expectation that if, if two people went and were a witness to something, then they could come back and basically it could be carried out before a jury that, that you couldn't just have one witness of something, but you'd have two. And a part of Jesus sending them out was to see who in the surrounding region would receive the work of the kingdom and who would reject it. And so the two of them would come back and give the report to God in the flesh saying that the, the, the people in this community, they received it. The people in this community, they were closed and chased us out of there. Listen, he sent them out two by two also because no doubt they would work together and learn from one another, that they'd share this journey together. Now, I I just think it's a moment for us to remember something. And that's that what God has entrusted us to do, me to do, he does not require that I do it alone. Instead, he actually instructs that we do it together. You see, God has entrusted the work of the ministry to you, but he's not asking that you'd feel the burden and the weight of saving the world on your own shoulders. He alone is savior and you are not even meant to go out at it alone. Because the only thing that God will ask you to do alone in scripture is to believe. Because only you alone can make that decision. Everything else that he'll ask you to do, it's in the context of a y'all. In the Greek language, you remember there's a you that's a singular and a you that's a plural. It's a y'all. And in the New Testament, the mandates that are given reflect this here pattern where Jesus sends them out two by two. Listen, what it tells me is that you and I should not try to be some Lone Ranger Christian, some Lone Ranger follower of Jesus. He sent them together, but he also sent them intentionally dependent. They would need their God to provide, and a part of that was dependence on the kindness of other people around them in each village that they entered. It's easy to pick up in the story on this sense of urgency when Jesus gives the packing list he does to his disciples. They're to pack light. They're they're taking nothing but the bare essentials. There's no extra bag. Think of this. It meant that though they'd have simply the clothes on their backs and the food in their stomachs, they had nothing to carry an extra change of clothes or an extra meal with them. They would soon, what it's telling you, very soon, as soon as they were hungry, they would then need the help of others for shelter and for food. They'd take no extra tunic, he says. Typically in the ancient world, you'd take a second tunic so that if you ended up that evening out in the elements without shelter, you would use that second tunic to cover yourself as a large blanket. But he's telling them that, no, I'm not going to let you do that, which is forcing them to seek shelter from strangers, to depend on other people and their kindness, to believe in good faith that people actually might listen and actually might receive them and actually might be open to them. He told them, don't take any money with you. And and requiring them to leave all that money behind meant that their only option was either to beg, but he said, you can't do that, or to trust in God to provide. In fact, when he says, don't take a bag, it's a specific Greek word that means a beggar's bag. He's telling them that they can't take supplies for their journey, nor are they to take a bag that people be uh, accustomed to seeing that, that meant that they were a person who needed their help and their alms. He says, instead, I want you to live in faith trusting that God will provide what you need. And then he tells him, and if a poor man invites you to stay in his home, if you enter a city and and someone says, you're welcome in my home, that you're not to look over his shoulder for some better option, like, wow, that guy's house over there is a lot bigger. And the meal that they're serving, I can smell it cooking, is gonna be a lot better than the, the meager thing that you're feeding us, that they weren't to have that attitude at all, that anyone, rich or poor, 
important or insignificant, anyone that would hear them, that they were to love and embrace them and treat them as members of their own family, to sit with them, to dine with them, to sleep under their roof. Okay, now track with me. This is all picturesque, isn't it? Is your mind, is it going back yet to the Old Testament? Is it going back to Egypt, to the Exodus? We have 12 disciples here where you had 12 tribes there of the nation of Israel, where God was beginning this amazing work with this special chosen people, where the staff was, was present, a walking stick. Remember the other gospels, they said, you're not allowed to take a rod with you, no weapon, but yes, a staff. And Moses would hold a staff in his hand, that there'd be no bag, no, no bread, no money, no coat. It's nearly a verbatim quote from the story of Exodus itself. When God instructs the people through Moses to be prepared to move quickly, as soon as you're released, as soon as you've been delivered, then run. God had instructed them to be ready at a moment's notice to leave Egypt behind because he was soon to make a way for them to be delivered. Think about the imagery. Leave everything behind because as soon as I make a way for you to be delivered, to be rescued, you need to be ready to move forward in faith. It's incredible imagery from the story of Exodus that Jesus is a true and better Moses, that Moses creates a picture and a shadow of Jesus, where Jesus is now saying, I'm going to lead my people out of bondage and into new life in a new promised land. Pharaoh and Egypt had held the nation in bondage in the Old Testament and Satan and, and our slavery to sin and to him have been terrible taskmasters, but Jesus can free us. Moses emerges just as Jesus does in this story with signs and wonders, with the goal of delivering his people and for that deliverance to happen in the Old Testament, an innocent substitute and sacrifice had to die, its blood to be shed, and its blood then applied by faith over the doorposts of the home for the judgment of God to pass over. And Jesus, on Passover itself, will be the innocent substitute and sacrifice, the spotless lamb who will be slain for us and those of us who choose faith to appropriate by faith his blood over our lives. The judgment of God now passes over us. The picture here is perfect to show you that Jesus is a true and better Moses. Listen, they were sent together. They were sent dependent. But in our story, Jesus made it clear. He also sent them with authority. And this is a big deal. Jesus gave these guys power over unclean spirits to cast out demons. And also, Matthew's gospel tells us that they were able to perform miraculous works and heal people. There are two different Greek words for power. One speaks of just power that's dynamite, dynamic. It's dunamis is the Greek word. It means physical power, impressive display of power. But this one that's used here where it says he gave them power over unclean spirits, it's a power that's contained within authority. It's a different kind of power than just muscle and raw force. I'll give you an illustration of that. Years ago, before I was married, I was house-sitting for a family and they had a beautiful home. And it was the first morning I woke up in their home that a, a construction company knocked on the front door saying, we're here to demo your kitchen counters. Now, for me, I could look at them and see they had the power to do that because they were holding sledgehammers in their hands and had their tool belts ready. They had the power, the ability to do what they showed up to do. But I needed first to call the homeowner to make sure that they had the authority to do so. 
Because if I just let them in the kitchen, all of a sudden they're smashing everything to bits. And then I, the, when the family comes home, they say, well, who did this? Well, the people who had the power to do this obviously did it. Yes, but did they have the authority to do this? Who gave them permission to do this? Who empowered them to come into our home and destroy our kitchen? So for me, I was very slow to give them uh, the ability to walk into the house and to start their job because I first needed to know, did they have authority? That's the idea here. Jesus didn't just give them physical strength to do this. He gave them authority. He, He gifted them with that to say, now you're capable of doing this. He entrusts the the apostles here with authority over dark forces. So they cast out demons. They set captives free. They proclaimed the gospel of Jesus and his kingdom. They saw miracles, miraculous things happen where people are healed. Listen, Jesus wants you to know him, but he also wants you to trust him. And he, like a father in this story, makes it very, very, very clear that what he wants his children to know is that he's trustworthy. That he wants his children to know that he loves them and can be depended on. That he could be leaned on and trusted in. This isn't some twisted scenario that Jesus creates and then forces the guy into. This isn't like a dad. And dad, if I'm judging you, I'm sorry, forgive me. But he's not a twisted dad who throws his kid in the pool and watches him sink and then puts his own arm out as your only lifeline. Like you're going to sink and die unless you trust me. He's not setting them up in a situation like that. He's putting them instead in a situation where they will see his heart and his ability to care for them. He's wanting them to know that that you aren't truly alone even when you feel separate from me. That that my provision and my love will still be present with you. You know, I have a friend years ago who told me one of the most impactful things in his adult life was the day that his best friend's family had him come over for dinner and gave him a house key. For me, when he first told me, I was like, well, okay, I don't... He said, well, you don't understand. I'm, I'm far from home. My family's on the East Coast and my home life is messy and it's, it's, it's not a thing I, I really look on fondly. But this home was different. And for his parents, my friend's parents, to give me a house key, it was a statement that I belonged here. It was a statement that I had a place here, that I was loved here, that there was an open door here, that it was a place that I could rest here, that there was a seat at the table for me here. It was a statement that I never again needed to be apprehensive in coming here because I could belong here. Because he now had confidence in the love that existed there for him, the love of a parent for their own child, that that family took him in as their own. And Jesus seems determined to build that kind of confidence in his people. That we feel like we've got a key that allows us access that tells us with confidence that we can come boldly to his throne of grace without hesitation, that we know that there's a place for us, that we're loved and cared for, that there's provision there, and a place and the ability to rest there, that that's what Jesus invites us into. Listen, Jesus told us that I will not leave you as orphans. I will send you a helper. He said, I'm going to send you my spirit. He even told his disciples later, it's better for you if I go away Because when I go, I send that helper who will be with you and shall be in you. Think about this. Would you rather, this last week, as we'd be hiking around Mammoth on different trails and stuff, our youngest, Declan, she's four, her legs are small because she's four, also because she's an O'Keefe. But her little legs were tired as we'd hike. And so she would whine constantly, hold you, hold you. And uh, we we would try playing would you rather just to get her mind off it. Would you rather, you know, eat a 
a sandwich with worms or would you rather eat a soup with crickets or whatever, just trying to get her mind off it. I think our favorite, I don't know if I should, if you're squeamish, cover your ears, but was would you rather drink water from a stranger's bathtub or from a fish tank? To which she said, neither. But if we played would you rather, think about this. Would you rather have Jesus beside you in the flesh today? Or would you rather have his spirit at work in you today? Because if I'm honest, most of the time I'd say, I'd I'd really rather sit down for coffee with Jesus. But Jesus said, it's better for you if I go away. the, The better option is that I will send the Holy Spirit who not only will be with you, but will reside inside of you. Jesus alive in the flesh walking beside me, so very appealing, but his spirit dwelling within me is so different. One provides companionship and an example to follow, Jesus does, but the other provides companionship and the power to work inside me, to transform me from the inside out. That's the work of his spirit, and that's who he sends us out with today. Listen, I want you to know that Jesus wants you to know him, that he wants you ultimately to trust him. And here's the third and final thing is that he's going to then ask you to represent him, that Jesus will ask you to represent him. We like to hear Jesus say, hey, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But there's a rhythm and pattern in the gospels and in all of scripture of coming to him and going out from him. Because later Jesus will tell those same disciples that he said, come unto me if you're weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He will then say to them, go therefore into the world and make disciples. Listen, even for you to be here in a church gathering, we share that pattern of coming and going, of gathering and scattering. Because remember, my, my role as a pastor at our gathering is to equip saints for the work of the ministry, Ephesians says, so that you effectively scatter into the world because you're the ministers, so that you scatter into the world and effectively carry out the work of the ministry that God has entrusted to you. As I've told you many times, it's true. That means that the success of our church is not so much based on what's said, sung, or done here, so much as it's based on what you do when you leave here, because you're the ministers. Pastor and author R.C. Sproul, he had this to say about their packing list. He said, it was as if Jesus was saying, you're going to have to depend on my father at every point of this mission. You're not going to take anything with you, not even the slightest bit of change in your pockets. Jesus wanted them to leave everything burdensome behind and rely totally on divine providence. Please hear me on this. If you don't feel fully equipped or prepared where you're saying, I just want to know him, I want to learn to trust him, but I don't know about this whole represent him business. If you don't fully feel equipped or prepared, just know it's hardly an excuse because think about how he intentionally set the guys out. He purposefully, in a sense, hamstrung them where they were not feeling that confident or fully equipped and prepared for the mission that they were being sent out. He didn't intend for them to feel that way, fully equipped and prepared. Because he wanted them to depend upon him. Remember, that was the whole goal, that they trust him. And it's the same for you and for me. There's this really important little part in the story where Jesus tells them to shake it off. And maybe you've seen someone even who comes to your door, knocks on your door, tries to give you some pamphlets to lead you into a new church movement that they're a part of. And when you reject their message and say, it's not for me, I've chosen to follow Jesus, I'm not going to join your church or your cults, that you'll watch them as they leave your doorstep, they'll shake the dust off their feet, they'll clap their heels together, and they'll walk off on their way. You've probably seen someone do this, or maybe you haven't. If you haven't, you're missing out. Um, (laughs) 
This idea, though, of shake it off. When you think about it, Taylor Swift owes Jesus royalties. Because this is kind of the song that Jesus sung to the guys as they made their way off into the unknown. He told them, you're going to have to shake it off. And sometimes I think the greatest hindrance to the gospel message in the world is either what, what becomes this arrogant, hypocritical example that we set for the world to observe in us, not just the church corporately, but individual followers of Jesus, that, that we have this arrogant attitude. We lack humility, the humility, the grace of Jesus. We lack it, and it becomes this huge hindrance to the gospel. But the other thing that seems to hinder Jesus' kingdom moving forward is just the fear that so many of us find ourselves paralyzed by. And it's a fear of rejection or of failure. Like, I, I'm okay to talk about any area of my life, any aspect of my life, except my faith in Jesus, because I don't know how someone will react. And in today's day and age, it's so funny, the irony, that you can't have an exclusive opinion, but that in and of itself is an exclusive opinion. That there's no such thing as absolute truth, except for the statement that there's no such thing as absolute truth. That it's wrong for you to have an exclusive view on the world and what's broken and what will make it right, but I'm going to cancel you if you don't share my opinion that's saying this is the way that it's going to work, is that everyone lets go of all of those opinions. The whole thing is so mindless, but we let it paralyze us in fear. Listen, Jesus expected them to be rejected in some places that they would travel. He would later tell them even, it's probably going to get worse for you because everyone will hate you because you're my disciple. And he even told them, do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than their master. If they persecuted me, you're going to be hit with opposition too. Listen, we should not expect that though from everyone. To, to hear, to hear uh, or to assume from this story that everyone would reject him was wrong because Jesus didn't assume that and that was not their experience either. It would be foolish to expect a standing ovation from everyone, but we should not be surprised or crushed by the fact that some people will reject our message. We shouldn't be so afraid and we shouldn't take it so personally. After all, Jesus, who was perfect in every way, was rejected by many and put on a cross. Jesus says here, though, shake it off. When you leave it, shake it off and move forward. It's a custom that was something the Jews did when they'd move into Gentile territory. When they'd leave the borders of the Gentile land, they'd shake the dust off because they didn't want to bring the contamination back into God's sacred space amongst his people in Israel. But now to go do this to other Jews was provocative. It was new, even a bit offensive to some people. To shake the dust off their feet was symbolizing God's judgment against those who'd reject them, and it was symbolizing for the guys, I don't carry the weight or responsibility of this. I can shake it off and know God didn't ask me to save them. He asked me to come here and to love on them, and so I can leave this here. I'm not gonna carry with me the, the dust or the dirt or the shade they threw my direction. In fact, Jesus said it'll be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city that rejects you, that drives you out. For Jesus to say that was probably both encouraging and so sobering for the guys. Encouraging because they realize that when I'm rejected, what they're rejecting is God himself. They're rejecting Jesus. It was encouraging because it, it let them get out of the way and say, I'm not going to take this so personal because I see that I'm sharing in this moment with Jesus and their rejection ultimately is of him and not of me. But it was sobering because there are grave consequences for those who would reject their message. 
Jesus said they'd be worse off than Sodom and Gomorrah, which is the worst of the Old Testament examples of a city who's in rebellion against God. The, the, the city that's the worst in the Old Testament in rebellion against God is better off than any New Testament community or person or New Testament era that would reject the message of Jesus because we have now a whole different look and understanding at the plan of God for the ages and his mercy and grace and love extended through Jesus. Jesus was not hesitant at all in this moment or elsewhere in the Gospels to speak about a final judgment. In fact, Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven, and I think it's because he desperately loves people, and he doesn't want people separated from them. But then he says to them, shake it off. And maybe this is something we have to start doing. Maybe not literally. Maybe that's your thing. I don't know. Dancing or something. But, but learning to both not be crushed by people's rejection and not to fear that rejection. I mean, when you think about it, what these guys sent out by Jesus are doing in this story is bigger, though, than just going out to share their faith in Jesus. What they did was bigger than that because what they did was they invited other people into an experience of Jesus' kingdom. Yes, a part of that was sharing their faith in Jesus. But what they did was more than just that. Because people, when they came in contact with them, were healed and made whole. Because people, when they came in contact with them, were delivered and set free. People who came in contact with them experienced the reality of Jesus' kingdom in the here and the now. And for us to be commissioned by Jesus is bigger than just being sent out and told as you're slapped on the backside as you leave the door, hey, go talk about Jesus. No, we're inviting people in to experience the reality of Jesus' kingdom. And in my life, Jesus is king. So when you're with me, you experience his kingdom. This isn't merely about go share your faith, tell someone about Jesus. What they did, what you do, I think is bigger than that. They were, we are to bring people into an encounter with the king of heaven, with his kingdom at work on the earth. Jesus' challenge to them was let people see and experience what it's like to be loved by the king through you. To be healed by the king through you. To find hope from the king through you. To find and experience peace from the king through your life. Listen, if heaven's king is truly alive in me, then I'm not only a member of a kingdom, but I'm also the means of the world's experience of that kingdom. The world is meant to get a taste of the kingdom of God through their interaction with heaven's king who resides in me. We become the glimpse of what heaven, of what the kingdom of God is like and the way that we treat them and the way that we care for them and the way that we put their needs before our own. We need to let people experience the kingdom of God through our lives where Jesus is king. And I love that I feel like we've done that even in this building, like even on this campus. That this is the reputation our church has. That, that as we've prayed and asked God for opportunity to love the people here, we didn't just ask him, let us tell uh, these people, Jesus, about you if they've never heard about you. No, we, we instead said open doors of opportunity for us to love them and leave your fingerprints on this campus, on this faculty. It's the Christmas card that you all received as a part of this church because you had blessed a family in the school who COVID had hit very hard. And they responded and in their card. They wrote, dear friends, we're so thankful for your generosity, care and love during this holiday season. You brought such joy to our boys, relief to us, and most of all, just affirmation that God is so good. That's what we're after. We're not after just a, a trip to Target or a gift card to, you know, 
to some other shop. Like what we're after is letting people feel and sense and experience what it's like to be a part of the kingdom of God. It's a text I received just this week as we were out on a hike. Someone forwarded it to me, uh, someone who they brought last week as a visitor, had texted them and said, hey, forward this on to Trevor, but here's what the text read. It said, I sat on the shuttle this morning by a woman who happened to be a teacher at Painted Rock Elementary. Don't even ask how the conversation came up. I mentioned, though, that I went to Sunday service at the school last week, and she raved about how that congregation have been amazing to the school and the teachers. She didn't sound like she's a church person, but was moved by their care. She said the church was doing wonderful things, especially for that little girl and her family who has cancer. This is what we're meant to do. Everywhere that we go collectively as a church, everywhere that you as your family go, everywhere that you as an individual go, that we're meant to leave people with a sense that something with these people is so very different. What they're experiencing is being a part of a kingdom that's turned the world system upside down. Because we value not just a bunch of principles, but because we know a person who's loved us and been gracious to us when we didn't deserve it. And now we get to demonstrate that kind of love and grace. And we do it with urgency like they did. Don't you see the urgency in what Jesus told his disciples? He told them the stakes are high. They're very high. There's eternity at stake here. There's final judgment that's coming. These people that, that Jesus desperately loves, and so he sends them, out, sends them out because he doesn't want those individuals separated from him. There was no time to waste. Colossians says it this way, that we ought to redeem the time, buy up while the buying's good, make the most of every opportunity we have to share in a sense of urgency that Jesus carries here. For him, he expected, when you go, don't, don't be shocked. You're going to experience, you're going to be met with both hostility and hospitality. He expected that both good and bad responses would be received by them, that, that some would hear them out and, and even invite them into their homes and to be a part of their, their family dinner. Listen, don't walk out of here this morning defeated, thinking, well, no one is ever going to receive me. No one will ever listen. No one will ever hear it. No impact will ever be made because it's just not the case. Because it's heaven's king that loves those people and wants to bring them in. He will work through us. Listen, we aren't selling someone a timeshare or having them sign up for some pyramid scheme. We're introducing them to a person. And neither our job nor our success is based on results. It's based on faithfulness. I hope you notice that. In the story, the results are not even listed. And none of the gospel stories does it actually tell you about what happened about how well they impacted those communities or what actually took place because the success was not wrapped up in the results. It was just wrapped up in their faithfulness. No information about those results are given, only that they faithfully went and that God faithfully honored his promise to make them able to do more than they could do without him. And I wonder, I wonder if they had that question of like, gosh, Jesus, you're sending us out away from you, separate from you. You could do great things, but Jesus, what impact can we really have and it tells you in our story that the, the echoes of what Jesus was powerfully doing through their lives reached all the way into Herod's palace. That the impact of what Jesus' kingdom will do and the impact that it can have is relevant to the poorest of poor and the richest of rich. That there's no one that will go untouched by its impact. Listen, so much of the time I think we boil our decisions down to faith versus wisdom. But what we call conventional wisdom is just a way to manage faith out of our lives and schedules so that we don't have to trust. But look what happened when they chose to trust and move forward. You can close your Bible. I mentioned to you last week that 
when Jesus was rejected by those who are most familiar with him in his hometown, I, I mentioned that I think it's easy for us to get to a point in our life if we've been in the church for a long time where we start to think we've got Jesus figured out. But sometimes if we step back and, and give an honest look at this Jesus who stands before us, he becomes the Jesus we've created, where he looks a lot more like me than I look like him. And the way that we know when that's happened, it's that it's, it's true, it's, it's definitely happened when Jesus no longer surprises us, when he no longer challenges us, or when he no longer offends us. And I think this story reminds us of that yet again. That here what Jesus is asking of them would surprise and challenge them, and that's what Jesus asks us too, is to take steps of faith. Think about it, everything that makes you and I feel secure are things that he said, you don't need this to feel secure. You don't need this to step out in faith. Money helps us feel secure, and he says, leave it behind. You're not going to need that. And it's true, isn't it, that, that more never equates to enough when it comes to finances, to feel secure. Shelter of some sort. Well, he wouldn't even allow them to take a second tunic with them to cover, but it helps us to feel secure. Familiarity helps us to feel secure. As long as I'm known around here, as long as I've worked hard to earn a reputation here, then I know I can lean on people, and Jesus says, no, I'm going to take that from you too. I want you to walk forward and see that you don't even need that to feel secure and to feel safe. A plan is what I need. As long as I've got a plan going into it, and he says instead, I'm sending you out two by two. You don't know where you're going. You don't know who's going to welcome you. You don't know who's going to reject you. You won't find any way to feel in control, but I'm asking you to trust me. Jesus gave them none of the things that we would say would help us feel secure. He sent them without even him being physically present with them. But he didn't strip all those things as some malicious act. But doing so did prove to them that life was more than those things and that security is not uniquely connected to those things. The only thing that they could fall back on in the story was the father's faithfulness. No credit line was available to him, no quick stop at Target, no lifeline of family or credibility in their hometown. Oh, he's good for it. I'll bail you out this time because I know you'll hit me back. No, there was none of that to be found or to be had. Hear me, Jesus did not send them away. He sent them out. There's a difference. He sent them out with power and authority. They went out knowing that they carried with them something Jesus had imparted to them, authority and power. And we go out, not just being sent away, we are sent out, not from Jesus, but commissioned and empowered by Jesus. And we're not given a packing list and, and Jesus' authority. We are given his cross and his spirit. Think about it. On this side of the cross, it's on a packing list and his authority. It's the cross is what we are given and his spirit. And his cross is not for me to die on. It's the demonstration. It's where he died, the demonstration of his great love and care for me, of his commitment to me. That's what I'm given to carry with me into my mission. Yes, I'm told, pick up my cross and follow him because there will inevitably be sacrifices that need to be made, broken desires in my life that need to be let go. But his cross remains for me as a reminder of his love for me. And the other thing he sends me with this side of the cross is his spirit because he'll never leave me nor forsake me. Because he who began a good work in me will be faithful to complete it because his work in my life will transform me from the inside out into the likeness and image of Jesus. Because he will continue to move and live through me with the compassion, the love, the power, the authority, and the grace that was on display in Jesus' life. That's what I'm sent with. Not, 
Take some authority and nothing else. I'm sent with a cross and the power of his spirit inside me. Each and every one of us as Jesus followers. You know, Matthew's gospel tells us the thing that drove Jesus, compelled him into action. And the thing that drove him to send out others was that Jesus saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And that he was moved with compassion. Jesus' motivation, the driving force that empowered his own mission to come from heaven was his compassion for us. That compassion for the world then looked at the guys in the eyes who knew him well and who were confident of his love and commitment to them. That same compassion said to them, it's time for you to go forward then and bring other people into the beauty of the kingdom. It didn't just drive Jesus to a cross for you. It drove him then to entrust something to you, to entrust the kingdom to you, to entrust the experience that others get to have of knowing him, of learning to trust him, of representing him. It was the compassion of Jesus. And so, Father, we thank you today for that love and grace and compassion. Jesus, we thank you that what you ask of us is not impossible. What you want from us is not something we can't provide. You want us to know you. You want us to trust you. And you want us then to choose to live our lives representing you, bringing others into the experience of the kingdom where Jesus is king. God, give us opportunity to do that as a church. Give families opportunities to do that as families. Give people opportunities to do that as people. Jesus, may the compassion that drove you to a cross for us, may that kind of compassion for the world drive us not to divide from the world over our differences or over our frustrations, but may it drive us to engage with people who are different from us, who are broken and in need of a touch. Jesus, we should stand in such contrast to a cancel culture right now who's just dividing lines, drawing dividing lines everywhere and become so tribal. Jesus, may we build bridges over each and every one of those lines and may we humbly repent where we've built walls instead of bridges with our neighbors in our community, even with members of our own family. And Jesus, may your compassion overwhelm us and drive us, compel us to go back to those people with love and grace. May they experience the King of heaven, his peace, his love, his joy, his rest. May they experience it in, in each encounter they have with us. In Jesus' name, amen.